Chapter Ten of the Case of Jenny Brace. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Case of Jenny Brace by Mary Roberts Reinhardt. Chapter Ten. I have said before that I do not know anything about the law. I believe that the Ladley case was unusual in several ways. Mr. Ladley had once been well known in New York, among the people who frequent the theaters, and Jenny Price was even better known. A good many lawyers, I believe, said that the police had not leg to stand on, and I know the case was watched with much interest by the legal profession. People wrote letters to the newspapers, protesting against Mr. Ladley being held, and I believe that the district attorney, in taking him before the grand jury, hardly hoped to make a case. But he did, to his own surprise, I fancy, and the trial was set for May. But in the meantime, many curious things happened. In the first place, the week following Mr. Lally's arrest, my house was filled up with eight or ten members of a company from the Gaiety Theatre, very cheerful and jolly and well-behaved. Three men, I think, and the rest girls. One of the men was named Bellows, John Bellows, and it turned out that he had known Jenny Price very well. From the moment he learned that, Mr. Holcomb hardly left him. He walked to the theater with him and waited to walk home again. He took him out to restaurants and for long streetcar rides in the mornings, and on the last night of their stay, Saturday, they got gloriously drunk together, Mr. Holcomb no doubt in his character of Ladley and came reeling in at three in the morning, singing. Mr. Holcomb was very sick the next day, but by Monday he was all right, and he called me into the room. "'We've got him, Mrs. Pittman,' he said, looking mottled but cheerful. "'As sure as God made little fishes, we've got him.' That was all he would say, however. It seemed he was going to New York, and might be gone for a month. "'I've no family.' he said, and enough money to keep me. If I find my relaxation in hunting down criminals, it's a harmless and cheap amusement, and it's my own business. He went away that night, and I must admit I missed him. I rented the parlor bedroom the next day to a schoolteacher, and I found the periscope affair very handy. I could see just how much gas she used, and although the notice on each door forbids cooking and washing in rooms, I found she was doing both, making coffee and boiling an egg in the morning, and rubbing out stockings and handkerchiefs in her wash bowl. I'd much rather have men as boarders than women. The women are always lighting alcohol lamps on the bureau, and wanting the bed turned into a cozy corner, so they can see their gentlemen friends in their rooms. While with Mr. Holcomb gone, and Mr. Reynolds busy all day and half the night, getting out the summer silks and preparing for remnant day, and with Mr. Ladley in jail and Lydia out of the city, for I saw in the papers that she was not well, and her mother had taken her to Bermuda, I had a good bit of time on my hands. And so I got into the habit of thinking things over, and trying to draw conclusions, as I had seen Mr. Holcomb do. I would sit down and write things out as they happened, and study them over, and specially a word over how we could have found 
a slip of paper in Mr. Ladley's room, with a list almost exact of the things we had discovered there. I used to read it over. Rope, knife, shoe, towel, horn, and get more and more bewildered. Horn might have been a town, or it might not have been. There was such a town, according to Mr. Graves, but apparently he had made nothing of it. Was it a town that was meant? The dictionary gave only a few words beginning with horn. Hornet, hornbland, hornpipe, and horny, none of which was of any assistance. And then one morning I happened to see in the personal column of one of the newspapers that a woman named Eliza Schaefer of Horner had day-old Bob Orpington and Plymouth Rock chicks for sale, and it started me to pussing again. Perhaps it had been Horner, and possibly this very Eliza Schaefer. I suppose my lack of experience was in my favor, for after all Eliza Schaefer is a common enough name, and the horn might have stood for hornswoggle for all I knew. The story of the man who thought of what he would do if he were a horse came back to me, and for an hour or so I tried to think I was Jenny Bryce, trying to get away and hide from my rascal of a husband, but I made no headway. I would never have gone to Horner or to any small town if I had wanted to hide. I think I should have gone around the corner and taken a room in my own neighborhood, or have lost myself in some large city. It was that same day that, since I did not go to Horner, Horner came to me. The bell rang about three o'clock, and I answered it myself. For, with times hard and only two or three rumors all winter, I had not had a servant, except Terry to do odd jobs for some months. There stood a fresh-faced young girl with a covered basket in her hand. "'Are you Mrs. Pittman?' she asked. "'I don't need anything today.' I said, trying to shut the door, and at that minute something in the basket cheeped. Young women selling poultry are not common in our neighborhood. What have you there? I asked more agreeably. Chicks, day-old chicks, but I'm not trying to sell you any. I... may I come in? It was dawning on me then that perhaps this was Eliza Schaefer. I led her back to the dining-room, with Peter sniffing at the basket. "'My name is Schaefer,' she said. "'I have seen your name in the papers, and I believe I know something about Jenny Bryce.' Eliza Schaefer's story was curious. She said that she was postmistress at Horner, and lived with her mother on a farm a mile out of town, driving in and out each day in a buggy. On Monday afternoon, March the 5th, a woman had alighted at the station from a train, and had taken luncheon at the hotel. She told the clerk she was on the road, selling corsets, and was much disappointed to find no store of any size in the town. The woman, who had registered as Mrs. Jane Bellows, said she was tired and would like to rest for a day or two on a farm. She was told to see Eliza Schaefer at the post office, and, as a result, drove out with her to the farm after the last mail came in that evening. As to describe her, she was over medium height, light-haired, quick in her movements, and wore a black and white striped dress with a red collar, and a hat to match. 
she carried a small brown valise that Miss Schaefer presumed contained her samples. Mrs. Schaefer had made her welcome, although they did not usually take boarders until June. She had not eaten much supper, and that night she had asked for pen and ink, and had written a letter. The letter was not mailed until Wednesday. All of Tuesday Mrs. Bellows had spent in her room, and Mrs. Schaefer had driven to the village in the afternoon with word that she had been crying all day, and bought some headache medicine for her. On Wednesday morning, however, she had appeared at breakfast, eaten hurriedly, and had asked Miss Schaefer to take her letter to the post office. It was addressed to Mr. Ellis Howell, in care of a Pittsburgh newspaper. That night, when Miss Eliza went home, about half-past eight, the woman was gone. She had paid for her room, and had been driven as far as Thornville, where all trace of her had been lost. On account of the disappearance of Jenny Bryce being published shortly after that, she and her mother had driven to Thornville, but the station agent there was surly as well as stupid. They had learned nothing about the woman. Since that time, three men had made inquiries about the woman in question. One had appointed Van Dyke Beard. The second, from the description, I fancied must have been Mr. Graves. The third, without a doubt, was Mr. Howell. Eliza Schaefer said that this last man had seemed half frantic. I brought her a photograph of Jenny Price as Topsy, and another one as Juliet. She said there was a resemblance, but that it ended there. But of course, as Mr. Graves had said, by the time an actress gets her photograph retouched to suit her, it doesn't particularly resemble her. And unless I had known Jenny Bryce myself, I should hardly have recognized the pictures. Well, in spite of all that, there seemed no doubt that Jenny Bryce had been living three days after her disappearance, and that would clear Miss Ladley. Well, what had Mr. Howell to do with it all? Why had he not told the police of the letter from Horner, or about the woman on the bridge? Why had Mr. Bronson, who was likely the man with the pointed beard, said nothing about having traced Jenny Bryce to Horner? I did as I thought Mr. Holcomb would have wished me to do. I wrote down on a clean sheet of notepaper all that Eliza Schaefer said, the description of the black and white dress, the woman's height, and the rest and then I took her to the courthouse, chicks and all, and she told her story there to one of the assistant district attorneys. The young man was interested, but not convinced. He had her story taken down, and she signed it. He was smiling as he bowed us out. I turned in the doorway. This will free Mr. Ladley, I suppose, I asked. Not just yet, he said pleasantly. This makes just eleven places where Jenny Bryce spent the first three days after her death. But I can positively identify the dress. My good woman, that dress has been described to the last stilted arch in colonial volute in every newspaper in the United States. That evening, the newspapers announced that during a conference at the jail between Mr. Ladley and James Bronson, business manager at the Liberty Theatre, Mr. Ladley had attacked Mr. Bronson with a chair, and almost brained him. End of chapter 10